Hi, Char Beauchart here. Like me, you obviously listen to podcasts. You're learning, and that's a good thing, but are you also earning ASHA CEUs as you listen? Newsflash, SpeechTherapyPD.com is offering a new discounted annual podcast subscription, and you need to take advantage of it. SpeechTherapyPD.com is the leader in speech-language pathology podcasts. They produce over 16 new podcasts with great topics, including ethics, every month. Listen to Speech Uncensored, First Bite, SLP Now, as well as the Speech Link. Here's what you do. Go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, access the podcast subscription, and at checkout, enter my special discount code to get a full $20 off. Instead of $79 per year, you pay just $59 and listen to as many as you want. Here's the code. Are you ready? Speech 20. Speech 20. That's it. Choose from over 175 hours of on-demand pod courses and get practical information and your CEUs. <laughs> it's absolutely a no-brainer. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Char Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Social communication is not an all-or-nothing skill. There's a variety of shades and levels of abilities and capabilities. And sometimes, as speech-language pathologists, it's difficult to know how and what to look for and how to meaningfully analyze them. Then, create and implement strategies that will help them communicate effectively and enjoyably in life. Patty Hamaguchi is here to help us sort it all out and add clarity about those with social communication deficits. I am honored and excited to learn from this very knowledgeable, experienced, giving, and down-to-earth colleague. Hold on. You need a really big pad of paper and pencil for this one. Here we go. Today, my guest is Patty Hamaguchi, who is probably one of the brightest, most hardworking speech-language pathologists I know. She's contributed in so very many ways to our field. She's a seminar presenter, author, writer, and creator of diagnostic tools, and owner of a thriving private practice. She is an expert multitasker. Patty earned her master's degree in speech-language pathology from Trenton State College, now called the College of New Jersey. Then, early in her career, she worked in the public schools, all grade levels, for at least 15 years in New Jersey and Connecticut, and was named Connecticut's Outstanding Young Citizen of 1990. I think that's very cool. And suffice to say, she's done a lot of therapy. Then, in 1996, she moved to Northern California. She is the founder and director of her well-known private practice, Hamaguchi & Associates. I say well-known because parents and their children come from all over the world to receive speech-language services. Patty is also the founder and CEO of Hamaguchi Apps for Speech, Language, and Auditory Development. She produces excellent and engaging apps, and her 16th app is coming out soon. And I have to tell you, when I was in the schools, I used several of the Hamaguchi language apps. They are terrific. As I recall, it's at hamaguchiapps.com. Patty is also the author of the book, Childhood Speech, Language, and Listening Problems, What Every Parent Should Know. And it's even been translated into Spanish and Chinese as well. She is the author of The Taps, 
TAPS-4, the Test of Auditory Processing Skills, 4th edition, 2018. And most recently, Patty co-authored with Dr. Deborah Ross Swain, a standardized test for children called the RESCA, and I'm just going to say the RESCA, dash E, Receptive Expressive Social Communication Assessment for Elementary Ages through Academic Therapy Publications, just in case if you want to find that. Also, they're in the process of field testing the RESCA-A for adolescents. And she's got two more coming out in late 2020, the RESCA-ELD, and that's Early Language Development, and the Early Language Communication Inventory. Wow. The ELCI. Mm, cannot wait to hear about all of that. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Welcome to the speech link, Patty. Thank you so much for that really, really wonderful introduction, Char. My, I wish my mother could be here to hear that. That was really very nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, you deserve all of that and more. Totally. Now, we are here to, to talk about elementary age children with mild to moderate social communication deficits. And when I think of social communication, it's like my brain goes in so many different directions. So is it true that social communication has so very many components that it's, I'm just going to say that it's complex? Would you say that? I, I think you could absolutely say that. Social communication disorders uh, span a number of different categories, right? And they overlap and intersect and they're comorbid with quite a few other conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in, in a large number of children that we see with it, there are other, you know, comorbid, if you will, or associated conditions such as learning disabilities, um, central auditory processing disorders, emotional deficits, uh, dyslexia, um, you know, all kinds of things. And, and mm -hmm. obviously, children who have autism spectrum disorder or any part of it as a, as a matter of definition do have social communication deficits. So some of the kids that we see with what we call a social communication disorder are what I think most of us tend to refer to as quirky, quirky kids. Mm -hmm. They may have had some sensory processing issues when they were little. They may have had speech delays uh, or maybe not, but there's something a little bit different about how they interact with other people, how they use language, how they use their own bodies, how they move, how they talk, how they use humor or don't use humor, how their voices sound. Sometimes their voices sound flat or, or a little stilted or a little bit awkward or odd. Um, and and hmm. surprisingly, the other the other thing that we tend to find with these high, the higher end of this population is that many times they're extremely bright. Mm -hmm. They're very bright, mm -hmm. very, very, very bright kids. And I think what's always hard to understand is that how can you be so incredibly competent, maybe with language or with math or science or factual information, but yet be so awkwardly, uh, interacting with, with your peers or not know what to say, how to say, et cetera. So there, there's, you know, a broad range. And then of course, there's the kids with ADD, ADHD and executive function difficulties mm -hmm. 
who have difficulty as well in this area. So there's there's quite a few kids who we're talking about who may be seeing you or seeing someone on the school's team or privately for other things. It could be seeing them for for a tutoring for content specific uh, areas, or it could be for mental health reasons. We see a lot of these kids with anxiety, especially social anxiety, um, and sometimes mild depression. There could be OCD, other kinds of things. So you may not initially see them for social communication, but sometimes social communication deficits are impacting the child, either uh, academically or emotionally, psychologically, uh, et cetera. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about my days in the schools and the kids that were referred to me were the articulation kids, the speech sound kids and the language kids. But now we have this other area, social communication. And I don't know if you have been in the schools recently or have talked with other people, but is this an area that teachers know about? Well, I think most teachers do, and and the problem that I'm finding in school districts is that they're so overwhelmed with rather severely handicapped children. You know, we have such an increase in the number of children with significant behavior problems and autism that these more high-level kids can often be noticed and seen, but if, if it doesn't impact them very directly, in the school, in the classroom, in terms of their academic performance. Sometimes what's happening is, you know, they might see them isolated on the playground or or in the cafeteria or, or, you know, during uh, recess, et cetera, but they don't really qualify because there isn't really a good test or score that, that they would score on under in in California, it's under the seventh percentile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, they have to prove that there's an academic correlate with it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that's hard to do. And it might depend on the caseload of the professional at the school in terms of, you know, I see it. I, I, I do see that child. I do know that that's there, but if parent isn't complaining, mm-hmm. Um, and the teacher isn't complaining, I don't have the resources. I don't have the time to really work with that child. So I think sometimes they're seen and they're, they're aware of the students, but um, there's just such a lack of time and resource. And I will say the other issue is that sometimes people don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an element with this population that I do believe is, you know, is not something we can unilaterally change, you know, a quirky person and a person with, you know, social communication deficits will likely always have some form of that where there is no cure for it clearly, but there are things that we can, we can do to maximize that child's ability and capability so that they can function better socially. And, and as we all know, especially in the work world, um, being smart and having content knowledge is only part of what makes a person successful, not only at work, but in their, their personal relationships as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, as a sibling. So it, it's in our interest as a society 
to help work with these kids to to work on these issues. But in the in the public school system, I think it's difficult for people who may be aware of the issues with these children mm-hmm. just to know how to help them and to qualify them for services. That makes sense. You know, I want to delve a little bit further into this. And I'm just wondering, I'm sure that ASHA has identified a lot of information. What does ASHA say about this? Are they coming from a strictly communication, verbal communication perspective? Or, you know, what do they say about social communication disorders? Well, if you go on ASHA's portal and on their website, they do have quite a bit of information on social, and they have in parentheses, pragmatic communication disorder. And that is how it's defined by the DSM-5. And and essentially what they're saying is that it's a combination of things. There's the social interaction piece. There's social cognition. There's pragmatics, which can be verbal and nonverbal, and also receptive and expressive language processing. So in terms of how they see it, I think they believe that it is something that speech pathologists can absolutely and should directly uh, address and, and use intervention strategies with, but also in concert with other professionals, right? Mm-hmm. So some of these kids, as I mentioned, do have uh, associated uh, emotional difficulties with anxiety, depression, uh, things of that nature, and they may be seeing the psychologist or the social worker for those things. So sometimes the interventions can be uh, done in concert with other professionals. So there might be, I know of, of school districts that have, you know, a lunch bunch crew where kids can go in and, and have lunch with other kids who are maybe struggling with their peers in a lunch situation, or the psychologist and speech pathologist can work together with a special education teacher or resource teacher if the child is on their caseload. So I think it depends on what other services the child is getting. Mm -hmm. If this is just their primary issue or if they have other issues, who is working with that child? And I think ASHA looks at it as though it's a shared responsibility, but the speech language pathologist having had, hopefully, um, a bit of uh, training in this area should be the one who does a bit of the testing, can be participating with the diagnoses, and can um, help in terms of just uh, supporting the child within the classroom and out of the classroom while they're at school. Because a lot of the difficulties with these children are those areas that are unstructured rather than structured. Sometimes in fact, the, the areas where they shine and do best are in those structured academic settings. You know, they can do a worksheet really well. They can uh, read a book really well and answer questions. They can do all kinds of things, but it's in between the academics for some of these kids. Now, some of them do struggle with, with elements of uh, the academic, academic curriculum, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but um, some of them don't. You know, some of them do quite well with the academic curriculum. Mm-hmm. So those are the children that I think are harder to qualify for services. And also they're harder to make a, a case with other professionals because the psychologists and social workers are often dealing with quite severe 
uh, issues and they might they might see you know a, a lack of friend making and isolation and quirkiness as just being lower on their scale of you know need if you will let's shift gears and let's talk about the evaluations and you know we have our diagnostics and it sounds like you have really put together some great diagnostic tools for us. So I want to cover that piece of what we do when we sit down with the child across from the table, but then also how do you analyze the child in those more informal settings? So let's start with sitting in our therapy room, doing some of the testing. Sure, great questions. Um, so let's start with the, the standardized testing. The tricky part is that most speech pathologists in the schools are confined to using the formal standardized tests that exist in their district. So they might be assigned, but typically it's, let's say for the elementary age, it's the self five. Um, sometimes it can be the castle, can be the told. I would say more times than not, it's, it's the self five. Mm -hmm. The difficulty that you have as a speech language pathologist is that those tests generally are set up to elicit just a single word response or a touch response to one of four choices. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of these kids, they can do that pretty well. If you ask them what is the opposite of X, they, they've learned them. Those are things that are teachable and they can learn. Uh, even some of the tasks, you know, such as, let's say, repeating a sentence, they can do that following directions. Uh, sometimes their processing is okay and they can follow directions or maybe it's weak, but maybe not disordered. Um, but the problem is the areas that we really see uh, struggling with these kids is, are tasks that are more narrative in nature. So if you're doing a standardized test, I would really caution clinicians to avoid relying solely on standardized tests, in particular those that only elicit a single word. Mm -hmm. You really need to look at how they put words together in a narrative context and also in a social context and with inference. So let's go through a few of these items. Yes. So in, in terms of standardized tests for narrative language, um, there's a test of narrative language too. And that does a really good job of looking at how a child can put together a connected language. The, the, te the um, testing tasks on that test are not geared specifically towards this population though. The tasks uh, don't require a whole lot of inference uh, and social cueing, but they do give you a good idea of how a child is able to perform narrative tasks. So I would augment a, a more comprehensive test like the, the cell five or the owls or the castle with with something like the test of narrative language, if you don't have that piece. Okay. The other standardized tests um, for speech and language receptive expressive, obviously you mentioned earlier that um, I'm the co-author of the RESCA-E. And you know the reason that uh, Dr. Deb Swain and I put that RESCA-E together is because we personally felt that none of the standardized tests were capturing the kinds of behaviors and skills that we saw in this population 
and that none of the standardized tests really quantified what we wanted to. And the other issue with testing, and I'm sorry, I'm, I know I'm rambling, but the other issue with testing is that for the most part from what I see, having worked in the schools and also working privately now, is that clinicians often look at standardized testing as the blueprint for their for their therapy goals. Mm, and yeah. so what ended up happening is we were getting kids that were having therapeutic goals set up specifically because of incorrect responses, if you will, on the standardized test. And so the, in, in effect, what their big term goals were, were to improve their test scores on these standardized tests. Mm -hmm. And I, I think when you look at this population of kids who have social communication deficits, much of what we see is not something you can easily quantify on a standardized test. So for example, um, let's say a child comes in and they talk like this. Hi, Mrs. Hamaguchi, how are you? <laughs> and they have a strange laugh, mm -hmm. right? So right off the bat, even before I've taken out, you know, any any tests or whatever, I can maybe already detect in here they they are walking oddly, they're they're smiling kind of oddly randomly, uh, they're not making eye contact. Those things are not really included on standardized testing tasks. <laughs> not at all. So right, exactly. So you know, a child can perform quite well on discrete, decontextualized tests, and if you look at um, the work that's been done on children on the autism spectrum, if you look at their fMRIs and if you ever have uh, the luxury of 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 hearing uh, Dr. Martha Burns, Mar Marty Burns talk on this, she is amazing and a wealth of information. But one of the things that we do see with kids who are on autism spectrum is a lack of connectedness between parts of the brain. So, these kids are often incredibly good and successful with very isolated tasks. So you can teach them to memorize something, or you can teach them to do Legos, or you can teach them certain things and they can become extraordinarily good at them. But they have a difficulty in coordinating and, and having a cohesiveness between those neural pathways. So when we use standardized tests, that look at decontextualized types of tasks, we're not looking at how they put them together in a real life way. Having a conversation is how we often put it together. Writing an essay is an academic exercise that asks you to consider a topic. How do you organize it? And if you have executive function difficulties, like many of these kids do, if you have difficulty with inferencing, right? So mm -hmm. if you're trying to answer questions about a story and you miss some of those subtleties, you know, the the, uh, the girl turned and, and sighed. <sighs> you know, sighed is not a word we hear in our typical conversation. Sighed is something we only read generally. Mm -hmm. It's not something we, we use in our vocabulary, mm -hmm. but we read it. And a lot of the, the uh, children who are reading don't understand what that sigh means. Sometimes a sigh can be, you know, exhaustion, <sighs> you know, I'm tired. It can be frustration. <sighs> it could be uh, exuberance. <gasps> oh, you know, yeah. it can mean all kinds of things. <laughs> so if you can't link sighs or nodding of the head or tilting of the head or, you know, facial expressions that are described in print, 
um, you're going to miss some of the subtext of literature. And especially as you get in the higher ends of literature and dive a little deeper than just factual re recollection, that's where we're going to see more of it. But what happens on a standardized test is you can get a lot of the rote you know, questions about, uh, especially a nonfiction passage, you can get them all correct and not really notice any kind of uh, social communication deficit. You're going to see it more in uh, novels and fictional information and, and uh, context. So that's where you're going to see more of it. But if you're doing a standardized test, sometimes there might be, you know, a nonfictional paragraph uh, narrative, and that might be a fictional one. And there might only be maybe two or three questions out of there that are inferential. So if you miss those two or three, and you still come out within the average range, or even the low average range, you can miss these children. So you really do have to do an item analysis and not just look at the overall score. I always tell people, you know, sometimes I, I get test reports from people, you know, outside my practice, because they know better than to do this, yeah. where if you, you know, if you're just looking at the core score, or you're just looking at even a whole subtest score, if it's, especially if it's on the, you know, lower end of average, and someone says, well, you know, they still scored with, you know, technically within the parameter, so they're fine. And, uh, and you look a little closer, I always say, it's like saying, you know, other than the melanoma on her face, she's very healthy, you know, <laughs> yes. and, and yeah, and our job is to find the melanoma and it, and you might have to look beyond the score. Yeah. You might have to look at the item analysis and see what, what did they miss here? Are these very fundamental low level inferential questions that they missed that they shouldn't miss? And yeah. if so, you need to find a more sensitive test. So we did come up with a RESCA E and on that test, we have, let's say for vocabulary, you know, a lot of the, the children who have social communication deficits are quite good with nouns and the ones who were uh, delayed talkers often come to us and they have uh, a boatload of noun usage, but they don't have uh, functional use of verbs or adjectives or and and or they can't really connect them well but parents have maybe um, done a lot of flashcards and, and things like that so what we found is that children with these difficulties have more uh, struggles with words that are related to emotion labels right mm. so in their express expressive language they often have everything in uh, black and white terms they're angry or they're happy, or they're sad. Those three words tend to be the three areas that they put everything into. There's, it, it's hard for them to understand disappointed, frustrated, uh, sometimes scared, proud, nervous, worried, uh, embarrassed. All of these nuanced emotions are very difficult for children who struggle with these issues. So those are the kinds of words that you want to look for. And we do include on the RASCA. But even if you don't have the RASCA, those are the words that you might want to probe. So don't worry necessarily that, okay, they, they did quite well on the, the vocabulary, but dig a little deeper. Look at uh, relationship words, right? So sometimes they're very good with mother, father, but sibling relationships, brother, sister, um, 
aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, cousin, they really have a hard time understanding that because, gee, she's a daughter, but she's also a sister. Mm -hmm. And wait a minute, that's the mother. She can't be a sister too. Well, she does have a sister. She came from a nuclear family. So mom has a sister and a brother and a mother. And that becomes very confusing because the, the underlying core struggles with these kids is that dynamic functional use of language, right? So they learn this is this. That's why they're good with factual information and you know math facts and things that never change. But uh, family relationships are dynamic. Emotions are dynamic. And uh, those are the kinds of vocabulary terms that we really want to take a look at when we're doing testing. And we and that includes formal, but also informal testing. And to follow up with the um, informal testing, we want to look at how the child uses slang. Sometimes we have kids who come in um, and they, they talk very appropriately with adults, right? Because we, mm-hmm. you know, hi, how are you doing? How's your day? Et cetera, et cetera. But if you go into a, a regular classroom of a second, third, fourth grader, that's not how they talk to each other. Right. They use a lot of slang. They use a lot of, uh, sarcasm, you know, oh yeah, right. Uh-huh. No way. Oh God. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that that goes mm-hmm. on. They don't sit there and say, how was your weekend? Blah, blah, blah. And so what I think clinicians tend to do is when they're assessing conversational skills or social language, they're looking to see, hey, does, does he have a conversation with me? Like when I go out with my friend for lunch on Saturdays, but that's not how kids talk. So in some cases that separates them and makes them look even more odd. So we might We might process that as, oh, he's very good with conversation, but that really is saying he's good with conversation with adults. And in fact, what we really want to know is how is this child communicating and conversing with children their own age? And the only way to really know that is to query the teacher, to observe it, talk to the parent, et cetera. You know, we can't really find that information out in an isolated clinic setting. We need to find out more about the uh, application of that. And um, the other question in terms of in terms of assessment that I like to talk about is um, knowledge of social, uh, you know, we call them social skills or uh, social uh, routines, etc. You know, do they understand to say thank you? Do they understand to ask for help politely or etc.? And, and to make eye contact, all those typical social routines, you know, to say goodbye. And what I always say to people is this, sometimes you can know something. You can know it from a, from a cognitive point of view. So that if someone says to you on one of these clinical uh, standardized tests, Bob gave you a present, what should you say? The child will say, I should say thank you. They know that. They know what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I will give you a parallel. <laughs> I'm someone who struggled with my weight my since the middle part of my adulthood. And I go to Weight Watchers. I've been off and on the wagon multiple times. And I love it when people say, well, you know, instead of having that brownie, if you had an apple, you would cut, you know, so many calories. And I always say to them, 
I'm like the kid with social communication deficits. I know what I'm supposed to eat. I have the knowledge. I know I'm supposed to pick the apple. I know I'm supposed to not have the French fries or the ice cream. I'm very well aware. And if you ask me, I could probably get an A plus on any nutrition test. It doesn't mean I do it. Right. You know, it doesn't mean I do it. It means I'm doing it. I, I might do it when I'm in the mood. It might, I might be motivated in certain situations to do it. Um, and I say that about these kids too. They have the knowledge. So a lot of our tests are looking at knowledge. Do they know what to say? Do they know, you know, the correct way to answer this question? A lot of them do, wow. but they're like me on a diet. You know, it, it it's hard for them. Like it's hard for me. So yeah. I I find that their motivation and their that's where the social cognition comes in for them to understand when and how it's really important to turn it on and to really force yourself to respond correctly. Or if you're with a group of kids, not to just get up and walk away. You're supposed to stop, acknowledge that you're leaving. Hey, I'm just going to run in for a few minutes. I'll be back in a few minutes rather than just doing the disappearing act. Because a lot of these kids do. They just disappear when they're in a play situation. No one knows where they are. They walk away from everybody. And those are the little things that, yes, they are aware if you ask them, but they don't necessarily transfer that skill into application. So that becomes the biggest challenge from a therapeutic point of view, but also from quantifying it. So those kinds of behaviors are really best measured in terms of uh, an inventory or a questionnaire, whether it's for the the parent, the teacher, et cetera. But to know about the application, it's not something you can really uh, determine on a directly administered test per se. That makes so much sense. And and that is my question. How do we do that? Do we follow them out on the playground? Do we call the parent and get them in and sit down and have a heart to heart? And um, do we talk with the teacher? So you were saying that perhaps in the classroom, we're not going to get the best knowledge about their social communication. Right. So how do we do that? Yeah, it really... It really, ha- you have to have a good spy, really. Yeah. You need someone who, who can go in and can really tell you what's happening. Uh, generally, the parent has observed enough play dates if they're objective. Some parents are really objective and really tuned in and really know exactly what's going on. And some will, you know, I, I, I do, you know, at my practice get some parents who will say, well, he doesn't really play with the other kids because they're not very nice and they're not very nice to him and he doesn't like them. And so I just play with him after school because they're just not very nice. And I'll say, well, you know, well, when you say they're not very nice, you know, what, what you know, what's going on that, that he doesn't really play with them or sit with them at lunch or play with them outside. Um, and, and sometimes they'll say, well, you know, he likes to walk around and make funny noises and uh, they won't, you know, they don't want to do that with him or yeah. something, you know? Yeah. And uh, so you have to dig a little deeper to see why are the other kids reacting the way they are? Sometimes there are, you know, situations where you happen to have a composition of children in a, in particular smaller private schools where there's only maybe 10 or 12 kids. And you can have, you know, a couple of bullies in there, a couple of kids who are really not nice and they can make a child's life pretty miserable. But in a public school where the classes are bigger, there usually is at least one or two other children 
that you can find some commonalities with. So maybe you don't want to play soccer, but you know, maybe um, when my son was little, he, he wasn't very athletic, although he's a personal trainer now. He wasn't athletic when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a couple of friends and they would go and they would dig around for insects. They would go out on the grass and they would try to find insects and and uh, and then they also liked uh, anime books and mad magazine type things. And they would look at that together. It, w- it wasn't what the big crowd was doing, but he did find kids who liked to do what he would do. And I think that's the key. When you have a real small classroom, sometimes that you can see that's a little bit more of a problem if the big group is really into doing one thing and maybe your child is is not so athletic or maybe they really prefer theater or they prefer um, doing more you know mental kinds of things or music or art or something the, the trick will be to help them find other kids who are into what they're into and that they can relate and feel good about themselves so patty you've kind of moved into therapy and what are some of the core techniques and strategies that you recommend in working with our social communication kids all right well i would say the the first uh the first part of my intervention that i do i have a number of things that i do and i like to consider myself sort of a juggler juggling several balls in the air during a a therapy session. I don't want to just focus on one thing. Let's say if you have 30 minutes or 45 minutes, there should be multiple goals that are going on. So for example, greetings. I mean, we always talk about greetings, right? And and how, how much we want to do it. Greetings are very important. Um, and they're important throughout the lifespan. And I think as children get into elementary school, we want to be mindful of the fact that children at that age use different greetings than we do with adults. So, you know, if a child comes in and says, hello, good afternoon, Mrs. Hamaguchi, if he goes into a third grade classroom and says that to his peers, he's going to stand out. Mm -hmm. That's going to sound a little bit awkward. So we need to know the culture of that school, that class. Do they, do the boys tend to say, yo, yo, Joe, or, or what's up? Or, hey, sometimes they don't, you know, they'll just look at each other. They're nod their head. They'll smile. Hey, mm-hmm. that's how they greet each other. Hey. So the, the greetings are going to need to be dynamic. So it's important to know the, the actual greetings that are used within a particular region or classroom. I like to use a notebook for all of my kids for therapy. It doesn't matter what we're working on. A notebook to me sort of solidifies for the child in a very visual way what the goals are of what we're doing. And it helps them see and remember what they're being taught. I tend to use uh, what I refer to as a metacognitive approach, meaning I want the child to know what I'm teaching, why I'm teaching it. And so if we're thinking about social cognition, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, we think about, is it the chicken or the egg, right? Do they know why? Sometimes we need to tell them very directly why, And sometimes they know why, like me with a diet, I do know why I still don't do it, but I want them to know because as they get older and as some of this sets in, I do believe, even though they don't always apply it as, as a younger child, I do believe that information stays with them. And as they mature and neurologically mature, some of that information will start clicking together. So I do like to explain what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and I do like to put it in a notebook. So we, in terms of greetings, we look at how someone greets a teacher versus a parent 
versus their peers because they they are different kinds of greetings or their grandmother, right? Right. Uh, So drawing and having speech bubbles and even watching TV shows that the child is, is watching, noting, hey, do you see that? That's how he's greeting. Or, hey, that child walked into the room and walked right past the parent, didn't say anything. That wasn't a really good greeting, was it? So that's just greetings. Um, language for initiating play is very important to work on very directly. So just even the words, having a set group of phrases like what you doing, which is a more vague, unclear way of doing it. But if a child is, is uncomfortable directly asking, they can sort of say that. And usually if you say, hey, what you doing or what are you doing? It shows that there's an interest there. And if the child is able to be more direct, hey, can I play? Um, I often uh, take time to teach compliments and how to give compliments. And initiating play with others is a great way to, to apply those. For example, wow, you're really good. You know, when someone's kicking a ball or catching or doing something on a, on a jungle gym or something, wow. You're really good. Mm-hmm. Um, other children really like to hear compliments and it can soften someone and also uh, help that child break into whatever activity they're doing. Okay. Can I stop you there? Yeah. All right. See, that is a great example of knowing what to do. How do you solidify that to get that conversational skill or that interactive skill to transfer over? Do you do role-playing? Do you watch a YouTube and then replicate it? <laughs> do you bring in other kids? You know, how do you nail that down to real life so that they do it the next time that situation arises? Right. So that's the kind of thing that you have to do in a group setting. There's no other way to do it effectively. So if you're working in a school district, you have the the luxury. Most people these days are working in groups in general. Mm-hmm. So and these types of uh, cases are best handled in a group. Anything for social, you want to have a group of kids. So yeah, so sometimes we'll literally say, okay, we're going to play such and such a game. Johnny, you're going to come with me outside. You guys all play. He's going to come in and he's going to say something. And then you, you know, and then we'll see if they know what to do after that. So, okay, here we go. And we rehearse it and they come in and then we cycle the next one out. Okay, your turn, you come and we rehearse it. We rehearse it. We have sometimes have cue cards in the beginning with what they need to say. And we have cue cards with the other students should say. And then after a while, we turn them over. Sometimes we might have to get them started with that first word. Yeah. What you, you know, what you doing or, um, Hey, that looks like, you know, fun. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, now you try it by yourself. I just, you know, so now we're going to go back out. What we always like to do is anything that requires cueing. So if I'm giving initial sound cues or if I'm giving the first part of that phrase or whatever I'm doing, I'm going to back that child right back out and then we're going to do it. And this time he'll do it all by himself. Right. So I'll say, okay, this time I helped you. Let's do it again. Because you want to do it while it's fresh in their memory. So we're going to back right out. Okay, now now you do it by yourself. Good. And we do that until they can. So if I have to cut off a couple of words, uh, just start them with the first word, I will back out and repeat it. Unless their body language is telling me, 
that they've really had it. And please don't make me do this again, maybe two or three times at the most. But yeah. if I'm losing them, you have, you know, we have to use our social detective uh, skills as well. Right. right. So if I see that the child's like, no, 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 I got this. Let me try this. Let me try this. I can do this. Yeah. Then I'm going to keep going with it. If they're looking at me like, oh, for goodness sakes, like, please, this is awful. I'm probably going to stop there and just say, okay, good. Well, next time we'll see if you can do it by yourself, yeah. you know, and maybe rehearse it extra outside the classroom. Let's rehearse it two or three times outside. You're going to say this, you're going to say that. Okay, now you go in. Because eventually the goal is for the child to do it independently. So the first step is getting them to do it independently with as little cueing if, or no cueing within a structured therapeutic setting. And then meanwhile, we are going to be doing some YouTubes and looking at skills and, and there's some apps and there's some TV shows and there's YouTube videos and all kinds of things we can look at for more visual reinforcement, but really hands-on practice and repetition, repetition, repetition is the, the best way to go with that. Okay. So the other thing is negotiation skills, right? Mm -hmm. So the negotiation skills are in particular tricky for kids who struggle with uh, pronouns, I and you. And so one of the things that we really want to do with kids in particular who are on the spectrum or have language disorders who really struggle it, we have to work on how about, and you just put it in this phrase, how about you and then whatever you want them to do. How about you stand over here and I'll stand over there, whatever. But the you and the I has to really be understood and mastered quite well in order to have some of that negotiation within a play scheme. So that's something that, that we practice quite robustly. Another word that we like to practice with uh, language of negotiation with play is the word rather. Mm. And, you know, rather is one of those words that, you know, it's not on test lists. It's not here, but it, it's a very easy word to use in the structure of play and social skills. So, for example, uh, would you like to go on the uh, jungle gym or would you rather fill in the blank? So that rather word is something that um, children we work with really connect to choices for your play partner. And so we will really emphasize to them, remember to ask Sue what she wants to do. Remember to give her that rather choice. You know, how about we do this or would you rather blank? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so just giving them some language skills that they can apply is very, very helpful. We yeah. talked about leaving, the language of leaving. Um, I touched on compliments. Um, so let's talk a little bit about compliments. I know I, I touched on them uh, earlier, but I want to talk a little bit more in terms of the therapeutic piece. Okay. First of all, just understanding what is a compliment. A lot of the times, if you think about children with social communication deficits, they don't respond or react when you say or do something for them. So for example, um, I know this because we are giving some field tests uh, right now for the Resca A. And one of the tasks is to compliment the child and to think, to notice how they react to the compliment. So we might say, mm -hmm. you know, I really love the shirt you're wearing. That's a great color on you, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the kids with the social communication deficits generally will not react. They don't thank you. They don't smile. They don't even seem to know that it's something they should smile about. Mm. Whereas the more typical kids really like that. They like the praise, they smile and they'll say, oh, thanks, you know, that sort of thing. So when uh, people also are doing something for someone, 
um, and they're being kind. They're picking up their books. You drop your books, somebody else picks them up. You want to be thankful for them and say something, but also compliment. Gee, that's really nice. Thank you so much, etc. cetera. Um, so receiving a compliment is something that we practice, but also giving them um, because we do find that kids with these deficits tend not to do that. Wow. And because they are often targets of bullies, uh-huh. it's a great way to diffuse a bully. And when I give uh, my longer presentations, I often talk about how important it is for kids who have these quirky behaviors and maybe odd social styles to diffuse a bully. And, and one of the ways to do that is a, as a preemptive move is to practice giving compliments like, wow, you were really good at that. You gave a great answer today. So complimenting a bully in other settings before they even have the opportunity to say or do anything to you can kind of soften them to you a little bit. And I used this strategy when I was in high school and I I moved to a new high school and I didn't know many people, but I was very well aware of who could make my life very, very difficult at that school. It was very obvious and I had heard rumors. And so if they were in my PE class or wherever they were, I would make it a point to say, I love the way you did your hair. And it worked. And I I definitely had had a lot. Yeah, it. it definitely worked. My I, I give my older sister uh, props for teaching me that little skill. I, I got all of the bullies on my side. I would give <laughs> them at lunchtime. If I had an extra cookie, I'd go by. I'm like, hey, I heard you like chocolate chip cookies. Nobody <laughs> bothered me. Uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. So anyway, so these are just some things in terms of the language piece of, of looking at it. Obviously, you know, I could talk for hours of it, you know, looking at language of emotions is very important. We talked about that a little bit earlier with the uh, testing piece of it, but in terms of the therapeutic part of it, I, I do encourage people to learn how to draw the most basic of faces and expressions uh, and use them to, let's say, put together some synonyms. So if we're thinking about a word like um, afraid, obviously it can be scared right? And disappointed, we can think, what does disappointed mean? So from a visual sense, if we're drawing a picture, disappointed has to first show some kind of anticipation. So we want to have like a a thinking bubble, maybe of a girl with an ice cream cone who's excited about going for ice cream. And then there's a change in expression because, you know, cross out the ice cream, mom says, we're not going to go. So there's a change. Disappointed is all about a change from happy to not being happy. But that's, that is a, something you can see more visually. So you want to show that visually, right? And so mm-hmm. for anger, levels of anger. So, you know, there's an, being annoyed, there's being angry, and then there's furious and outraged. And children who have these difficulties really don't understand the gradations of emotion, And they might not understand uh, gradations of emotion and voice as well. So sometimes these are the kids who don't really attend to changes in frustration on their their play partner's part or their parent. Um, So for example, if, if I'm telling my child, can you please pick up your toys now? You know, that's sort of a neutral, you know, I want to do it. Or right. if I'm getting a little bit more frustrated, I might say, can you please pick up your toys now? Now, for a typical child, they should hear the change 
and in that they should hear the frustration in my voice and know to take it more seriously. And this is why sometimes with kids who have these difficulties, one of two things happens. Either they don't pay attention and don't really react until you're yelling and very visibly upset. And then they'll say, why are you yelling at me? Why are you so upset? Because you, yeah. they're not really attending. They're not really changing their behavior until you ratchet it up that way because the nuances of change are too slight for them to really process. That's the one wow. case that we see. The other case that we see are kids who are overreacting. So maybe there's the slightest frustration in someone's voice. Can you pick up the toys now? Well, you don't have to yell at me. You know, these mm -hmm. kids don't mm -hmm. interpret the gradations either, but they often have anxiety or other issues and they really do process speech and voice in a different way. And so sometimes they'll come home and say that, you know, my teacher was, you know, so mad and yelling all day. And the teacher was merely saying, you know, sit down, sit down, come on, we've got to get going. But that child perceives it as being yelling. And that becomes yeah. an issue where they think kids are bullying them when in fact they're not. They interpret things differently. They hear uh, voice pitches differently. So some of those kids really need to work on hearing pitch and voice. I know the fast forward program does a bit of work on high and low frequencies. And that is an underlying skill that you need to have when you're hearing changes in pitch and vocal intonation. So that's another thing that you can incorporate if you have access to it. Um, you know, also words of comfort. You know, somebody is crying. A lot of these kids don't know what to say. They just, they just watch people cry or they watch them drop stuff or they see that they're upset and they don't really say anything. And so in truth, you know, a lot of people who struggle with how to use language and what kinds of words to say. So those are things that we can very directly work on. Obviously, idiomatic language, uh, these kids really struggle with that. It's something you're going to have to just nail down one by one. But the one thing that I would caution people is to not use antiquated materials. We have a lot of idiomatic language materials that use uh, phrases that nobody uses anymore. So you mm -hmm. really need to look at TV shows and, and hear, uh, just walk through the school and think about what your child is hearing. Look at the reading materials they have and go through that and pull them out of there. Try not to go and look at things that were used in the 1940s and 1950s yeah. um, with, your, with your child. Wow. Amazing. It is huge. It is complex. And it has to be personalized to the child. I have to think about how I would actually do this and modify my observation skills of this child and his environment and what he is dealing with and who he is interacting with. And that opens up my skill set because I'm totally used to just, oh, I'm going to do the test and I'm going to get the score and the kid qualifies or the kid doesn't. So this opens the whole communication piece up. It is totally amazing. I mean, you have opened my eyes, literally. Well, thank you. And, you know, I, I, I wish I had more time because I know there's many other things in terms of body language, facial expression and other other areas, but maybe another day. Well, that's what I'm thinking is that we need to do podcast number two here. <laughs> Well, Patty, I'm going to wrap things up, but I just cannot tell you how in awe I am of your knowledge and your ability to express it. And you have said a great deal in 50 minutes. Well, it's my pleasure. 
also, I'm anxious to take a look at your tests, the RESCA E and the A, and then you're coming out with the ELD. So, and your inventory. And if we can go to academic therapy publications, is that kind of who's carrying all of this? Yes. Okay. Excellent. Now, one other thing, I need to know your website. Oh, well, the, the app website is www.hamaguchiapps.com. Okay. And we do have quite a few apps. The ones that people find most helpful for this population is our series called Between the Lines. We have Between the Lines Level 1, Level 2, and also for adolescents and adults. Perfect. And then if we wanted to actually ask you a question, do you give out your email? Sure. It's um, phamaguchi at hamaguchiandassociates.com. Okay. You're terrific. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.